Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's confirmation time for the leaders of the Obama administration, and some, like the choice for the Energy Department, have been getting lessons in politics. Dr. Stephen Chu once said this about coal. Coal is my worst nightmare. But when he got to Capitol Hill, he said this. Coal is an abundant resource in the world, and the United States, I believe, will not turn their back on coal. Also, the child of an immigrant union shop steward becomes Secretary of Labor. To see someone like Hilda from the neighborhood, from our community, now to be a top cabinet member, for me, it's it's very dramatic. I mean, I'm not so sure I was going to get to see it in my lifetime. And paying homage to America's high-tension power lines. Those electrifying stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. What do former Senator Elizabeth Dole and former Secretary of State George Shultz have in common? Well, they were both Secretary of Labor, they also had Ivy League educations, and neither grew up in union households. They are in direct contrast to Barack Obama's pick for Secretary of Labor, California Congresswoman Hilda Solis. Not only does she come from a union family, that family had to deal with hazardous working conditions. Now Hilda Solis will oversee the Occupational Safety and Health Agency, including mine safety, and enforce the nation's labor laws. She'll also put into action the Obama plan to train workers for the new green economy. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet has our report. Hilda Solis's mother was born in Nicaragua, her father was born in Mexico, and she was born the third of seven kids in the blue-collar suburb of La Puente. To see someone like Hilda from the neighborhood, from our community, now to be a top cabinet member. That's Gloria Molina, the first woman and the first Latina elected to the powerful Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors 18 years ago. For me, it's it's very dramatic. I mean, I'm not so sure I was going to get to see it in my lifetime. Molina and Solis both represent the San Gabriel Valley. It's an area of contrasts, small, neat houses, beautiful mountains, at least on a clear day, and, says Belinda Faustinos of the San Gabriel Mountains Conservancy, the most landfills and the most uh, gravel pits that there are in the nation in one concentrated area. The neighborhoods are also home to manufacturing and the good jobs that come with it. In her own home growing up, Hilda Solis had a daily, first-hand view of the trade-offs some employees made when they worked in the trades. I look at my own father's uh, previous career, who worked at a battery recycling plant. Not a great job, paid well, but nobody wanted the job. So he did it for 20 years, and now he's suffering from all kinds of health ailments because of contaminants, uh, toxins, and uh, no safety equipment at the time. 
It's remarkable that someone with this proximity to heavy work will now oversee the nation's workplace safety programs. Solis's parents weren't just blue-collar, they were union members, and her dad was a shop steward. But Gloria Molina says businesses shouldn't fear that Solis will overregulate because she also understands more than most the importance of employment like her father's. You can regulate all day long, and in many instances, you regulate those businesses right out of the neighborhood, right out of the community. And those jobs are important. Hilda's family would not have survived had he not had a job of that type. In a playground in El Monte, preschoolers run in circles, clasping bells and maracas. Their yard looks out on a new public park, landscaped in native plants, the description of a historic berry strike etched in the concrete. Belinda Faustino says more than a decade ago, Hilda Solis saw the need for urban relief and created the conservancy that's funding this and other green spaces in the region. I mean, she definitely was one of the first uh, you know, people that I encountered in the legislature that I work with that just had this personal commitment you know, to open space. After creating the San Gabriel Mountains Conservancy to channel funding, Faustino says Solis helped set it up so local people would be trained at the college level to actually build the parks. And they recruited children, you know, local youth, you know, to uh, train them basically on, you know, doing native landscaping, for instance, uh, making sure that they understood how to put in infiltration systems to allow for groundwater recharge. So they partnered actually with, I think, Rio Hondo College and uh, some of the professors there to actually provide for training modules for the students. So Solis has been advocating for green jobs since before the term was common. Thank you, Anna. Buenos dias. Last fall, she addressed the liberal think tank, the Center for American Progress. To me, we're on this cusp of really changing uh, the way we think about manufacturing, the way we think about job creation, and the way we look at treating the environment. And in many ways, uh, I believe this is the new industrial green revolution. In Congress, Solis introduced legislation to ease the cost of future climate change programs on low-income people. She pushed for retraining for environmental jobs, for changes in how chemicals are regulated, and for limits on diesel soot from international shipping because of the impact on portside communities. I've actually seen these air filters, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, how could, how could that happen? In one course of 24 hours, you see a white sheet and in 24 hours later, it's entirely black. That is affecting our respiratory tracts, cancer, and all the other things that bring down the health and well-being of communities that live around those areas, around the ports. But when it came time for Congresswoman Solis to appear before the Senate Labor Committee as part of her confirmation, senators didn't have these issues on their minds. Democrats wanted to know whether Solis would commit to supporting paid family leave, addressing the shortage of nurses and high unemployment among people who are disabled. Republicans wanted her to promise to maintain a private voting process in workplace union elections rather than just letting employees sign cards saying they want to join. They weren't satisfied with Solis's answers to that question, nor to whether she agrees that employees in a union workplace should be able to opt out of that union. Here's Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee. Will you oppose any attempt to change the right of states to enact a right-to-work law as 22 states already have? 
that is something that is, uh, I don't believe that I am qualified to, to address that at this time. That is not something that I have personally discussed with the president-elect. And Republican Senator Mike Enzi of Wyoming asked Solis whether non-union contractors would still be able to compete on government contracts. I think that uh, that is something that I uh, am not able to speak to you at this time, but will like to review and then come back to you uh, personally on that matter. Um, so, so far we've got three reviews. Despite the concern over her labor background, Congresswoman Hilda Solis expects soon to be confirmed as U.S. Secretary of Labor. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. By and large, the other key members of Barack Obama's team will also easily win confirmation in the Senate. But confirmation hearings gave a hint of the very tough job ahead for those people who will lead the Interior and Energy Departments and the Environmental Protection Agency. Living on Earth's Jeff Young joins us now from Washington with more on what I guess you could call the big three cabinet positions when it comes to energy and the environment. Well, I think that's right, Steve. You know, energy, interior, EPA, those three, those are the ones who are going to be on the front lines with this ambitious agenda that Obama has set out for clean energy and climate change. And it's a huge job. I mean, let's be clear. If he sticks to the plan he outlined during the campaign, well, this means changing the very basis of our country's energy economy. No small job. And that's in addition to the other very important work that these agencies do. The senators who question these nominees say Obama has picked highly qualified people who are up to the job. Lisa Jackson of New Jersey's Environment Department to lead the EPA, Senator Ken Salazar of Colorado for the Interior Secretary post, and physicist Stephen Chu for Energy Secretary. So, Jeff, I want to focus on Stephen Chu because his credentials really stand out. I mean, he's got a Nobel Prize. He was in charge of one of the country's top energy laboratories at Lawrence Berkeley. But I take it on some of his past public comments, he might have ruffled a few feathers there in the Senate. For years, Chu's been very outspoken on the dangers of climate change and our continued dependence on fossil fuels. And he's talked about the need for higher fuel prices if we want to spur development of alternatives. He's also expressed deep concern about coal in particular. So there was a lot of attention on those statements. Yeah, I mean, saying things uh, as a scientist is one thing, but then as a nominee for energy secretary, well, that's quite another. So did he uh, backpedal on any of those, Jeff? On some, yes. Uh, on others, he stood his ground. You know, the very first thing that Chu stressed in his testimony was the importance of dealing with climate change. Climate change is a growing and pressing problem. It is now clear that if we continue on our current path, we run the risk of dramatic, disruptive changes to our climate in the lifetimes of our children and our grandchildren. And Chu says Obama is committed to a cap-and-trade system to control greenhouse gas emissions and put a price on carbon. And Chu is still very gung-ho, his words, on energy efficiency and renewable energy. That was the major focus of his work at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and it's where he got most excited in these hearings. Now, all that's consistent with what we've heard from him before. So uh, where did you hear Dr. Chu backing away from some of the things he said? Well, on coal and on gas prices, he had to do a little dancing. Uh, for example, uh, this was Stephen Chu speaking at an event two years ago, back when he was just an outspoken scientist, talking about coal. Now, we have lots of fossil fuel. That's really both good and bad news. We won't run out of energy, but we, there's enough uh, carbon in the ground to really cook us. Um, coal is, is my worst nightmare. Well, that was then. This is Chu now as energy secretary nominee. I, I said that in the, con the following context. If the world continues to use coal the way we're using it today, 
uh, and the world, I mean, in particular, not only the United States, but China, India, and Russia, then it is a pretty bad dream. Um, but I also say many times in my talks that uh, coal is an abundant resource in the world. India and China, Russia, and the United States, I believe, will not turn their back on coal. So it is imperative that we figure out a way to use coal as cleanly as possible. And once upon a time, Chu expressed doubts about carbon capture and storage, what's sometimes called clean coal, and whether that could work. Now he supports increasing investment in carbon capture and storage. He also had to pull back from some earlier statements about the price of gas. You know, last year he told the Wall Street Journal he thought we should be paying about what the European Union pays for gas. Well, uh, none of that talk now. He makes it clear he is sensitive to consumer concerns about gas prices, and any talk of a gas tax is off the table. Jeff, what about nuclear power? That's an area where Obama has seemed deliberately vague. Uh, Did Chu clarify things at all? I still prefer to keep it a bit vague. You know, he said he'll speed up the government's guaranteed loan program. That's very important to helping the nuclear industry build new power plants. But he's also concerned about the very high cost of nuclear power. And as for the waste issue, I thought it was very interesting that Mr. Chu said he wants more research into reprocessing nuclear waste. That's controversial because while it can cut the amount of radioactive waste, it can also increase the material that could be used for nuclear weapons. And on all of these, Chu made it clear that he will follow the science when making big decisions. And that's something I heard all three of these nominees say. Science will be our guide. And to my ears, that was a sort of implicit rebuke of the Bush administration in the way it's been setting policy. Jeff, stick around because after the break, I want to hear more about how these nominees say they will address the question of sound science. You're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Science must be the backbone of what EPA does. If I am confirmed, political appointees will not compromise the integrity of EPA's technical experts to advance particular regulatory outcomes. And that's Lisa Jackson. She's the woman Barack Obama has picked to lead the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Living on Earth, Jeff Young is telling us what we learned about Ms. Jackson and the others uh, on Obama's environment team during their Senate confirmation hearings. And Jeff, it sounds like Ms. Jackson wants to change how the EPA has been doing business. There's a new sheriff in town, Steve. That was pretty much the theme for all of these nominees who said, look, we know these agencies have big problems. We're going to fix them. And at EPA, for much of the past eight years, the agency has simply not been making policy based on science, what its own scientists recommended, whether it was climate change or clean air. We've had consistent complaints from staff scientists, science advisory boards saying they've been ignored. Uh, The agency's also been very slow, some would say deliberately slow, in its response to an important Supreme Court decision on global warming. All of these things mean that Ms. Jackson's going to inherit a lot of unfinished business. And the biggest one is probably what to do about regulating greenhouse gases. Is she going to use the Clean Air Act to limit CO2? She indicated she will if she has to. Uh, For example, uh, she says she will review the waiver that California and about a dozen other states want that would allow them to limit the CO2 coming from autos. The Bush EPA, of course, denied that waiver. If Obama's EPA approves it, that means about half the U.S. auto market is going to have to meet much higher standards for fuel efficiency. Now, as for the carbon dioxide coming out of industrial sources, Jackson would prefer to give Congress time to act, and she sought to ease some business concerns about that. One thing I can certainly pledge is that we will be 
reasonable and thoughtful and deliberate about moving towards um, our future as we begin to address uh, global warming gases. But one way or the other, whether it's Congress writing new law or EPA using the laws we have, we are heading toward limits on greenhouse gases. And that's one thing that Jackson worked on quite a bit when she ran New Jersey's Environment Department. Now, what about the other things that EPA deals with? Toxics, hazardous waste cleanup. Uh, What kind of sense of her priorities did you get there? We heard a few things she will act on pretty quickly, I think. One is perchlorate. That's this rocket fuel ingredient that's getting into a lot of drinking water. There's also going to be an effort to regulate the fly ash that's left over from coal-fired power plants. You know, those recent spills in Tennessee and Alabama really put the spotlight on the toxins in those dumps. And then, of course, there's Superfund. That's the program that's supposed to be cleaning up our worst waste sites. It is chronically underfunded, and I think Jackson's going to feel some heat to act on that pretty quickly. Now, Jeff, the Interior Department is the other key player here. Colorado Senator Ken Salazar looks like a lock to be the new Interior Secretary. Tell me about what he plans to do there. Interior is such an important department. You know, if you put together all the lands that they manage, it's about 20% of the country's land mass. And almost everywhere you look within that, you find big, thorny issues that he's going to have to deal with. National parks that don't have money for maintenance, uh, mining and drilling on public lands, leaving messes behind, the offshore drilling question, what are we going to do about that? Ken Salazar is going to have his hands full just with those. But wait, there's more. He's also going to have to deal with the ethical mess that's been left behind by the outgoing administration. Oh, yeah. I do remember something about the Interior Department officials getting, should we say, a little too cozy with the energy companies that they were supposed to be regulating? Well, that's the polite way of putting it. You know, we actually had Interior Department workers sleeping with sleeping with the oil company workers they're supposed to be regulating. That was, that was just one of many legal and ethical problems in that department. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon really put it in perspective, I think, with this exchange with Senator Salazar. You have some very heavy lifting ahead. In the political suites at the Interior Department, they have regularly been trampling on good science. And you now have to go in there and drain the swamp. We will be working on that uh, beginning day one. Now, Salazar got nothing but praise from his old Senate colleagues, and I'd say all three of these confirmations, uh, Salazar, Jackson, Mr. Chu at Energy, these are all slam dunks. But the jobs ahead, anything but. If they are serious about the agenda they've laid out here to really address climate change and really reform these agencies, well, I think they're walking into three of the toughest jobs in Washington. Livy on Earth's Jeff Young in Washington. Thanks. You're welcome. When it comes to U.S. energy policy and Native Americans, the record's pretty poor. Uranium and coal mining have brought pollution to Native communities and lands, but relatively few jobs. And rising seawaters due to fossil fuel consumption are forcing Native villages in Alaska to abandon their coastal lands. But now that Barack Obama has brought his promise of a lean, clean economy to the White House, many tribes are feeling hopeful. So hopeful, in fact, that a green policy statement representing more than 200 tribes and tribal organizations has been submitted to the Obama team. Winona LaDuke is a rural development economist and writer. You might know her as Ralph Nader's running mate on the Green Party ticket in the 2000 presidential elections. She now directs Honor the Earth, a nonprofit that helped draw up the Green Petition, which outlines what Native America needs from the Obama administration and what the Obama administration needs from Native America. We have this vast potential for renewable energy, the best potential in the whole country, 
comes from Indian tribes and Indian tribal communities. Um, we have been the most impacted by the last energy economy of anyone. And what we need to do is to capitalize the next energy economy in Indian country on terms that are just and are fair. So we aren't selling our wind rights out to major corporations and just receiving a pittance. You know, I'm relatively aware of the fact that, one, uh, the Obama administration has inherited a huge mess. And two, the Obama administration is full of vital energy to make a change. So we have infused our strategy saying that you want a green economy. This is what a green economy looks like in Indian country. And this is how you would do it. So what is it that you're asking the Obama administration to do? What we are asking the Obama administration to do is, one, increase tribal capacity in training to create a workforce that is able to move into renewable energy through financing. We are asking them for energy assistance efficiency work because most of our homes are trailers on our reservations. And in addition to that, homes that are already up are highly inefficient. So in order to reduce fuel poverty in Indian country, we have to have energy efficient homes. We are asking for renewable production refund for tribal projects that can't utilize tax credits in order to ensure that tribal governments are able to capitalize renewable energy in Indian country. We are asking for access to the federal grid in ways that will address tribal ability to bring our projects online at a level which is meaningful both for tribal economies and to address climate change. Now, your organization also made it very clear that you don't want to see the U.S. Uh, pursuing nuclear energy and uh, what's been called clean coal. Why is that? Well, clean coal doesn't exist. You can't wash it enough. You can't... A strip mine or blowing off the top of a mountain is not clean. There's no way to clean up coal. And so we just think that we shouldn't waste our time in the billions and trillions of dollars it would take to try to sequester something for forever, because that's what you'd have to do is for forever. So just leave it in the ground. Uh, nuclear power, our tribes have been heavily impacted and are presently impacted by uranium mining. We are fighting uranium mining out in South Dakota and in Nebraska and all through the north. You know, we have thousands of abandoned uranium mines and thousands of people who are impacted by radiation exposure. Nuclear power is expensive and is dangerous and is not the answer to climate change. There is no way you can bring enough nuclear power plants online in time to address climate change-related disasters. Um, what we need to do is we need to put the money that would be wasted on clean coal and wasted on nuclear power into a full-scale efficiency and renewable economy that treats people with dignity and doesn't treat people as second-class citizens and assume that we can dump our wastes in third-world countries or on Indian reservations. So let's look at some specifics here, Winona LaDuke. I understand about 100 tribes have already done some feasibility studies to look at uh, what could be done in terms of wind and solar energy generation. Um, what are those numbers? What kind of potential are we looking at here? So the United States needs to produce about 185,000 megawatts of green power in the next decade in order to address climate change. That's the reality. Tribal communities are in a position to probably produce about 120,000 megawatts of that between wind potential. They're saying that our tribal communities have the potential to produce about one third of present installed U.S. electrical capacity to massive solar projects that 
you know, our tribal projects and have the potential to feed into the present grid and create the green energy that will help this country address climate change. So um, we are the people of color with land and natural resources. That's what distinguishes us aside from other things from other communities of color. And on that land, we have the windiest places in the country. Go figure how that happened. But the northern plains, you know, even in my reservation, we have very high wind potential. I just finished this last week putting up the foundation for a wind turbine at my office um, in Callaway, Minnesota. It's a 75-kilowatt wind turbine. My tribe is looking at, and other tribes in our area are looking at about four more megawatts of power coming online probably within the next two to three years. Certainly, the the need for economic development on native lands is, is really as impressive as the renewable energy potential that you have with your very high unemployment rates. And in fact, I think a lot of reservation households don't even have electricity. So to what extent do you think that green jobs, green infrastructure, green energy is going to get those figures turned around to make the change that has yet to come to Indian country some 200 plus years into the life of this country? I am very hopeful. That is to say, I look at my own reservation, White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. On my reservation, one quarter of our money is spent on energy. All of that money basically goes to off-reservation vendors, whether it is for electricity or whether it is for fuel. You know, a quarter of our income is a substantial economy for our reservation and for any reservation. And so our strategy is to replicate what we are doing on White Earth, you know, nationally and say, instead of outsourcing, we can relocalize a good portion of our energy economy. What we need is the jobs in our communities. We need joint ownership or ownership of the wind power production and the solar power production so that the revenues return to our tribal communities. We need to be employed in those because we have 60% unemployment on my reservation. And, you know, the average age of a Native person is, is, you know, like 20, 21 years of age. And you could either send my young man off to jail or you could employ him or send him to the military. Winona LaDuc, you once very famously said, and I quote, I would like to see as many people patriotic to a land as I have seen patriotic to a flag. How do you feel about this being the time for that sort of patriotism? I think that the present time is good. You know, my youngest son, his name is Gwekanamad, Gwekanamad Gasco. And Gwekanamad in our language means when the wind shifts. And that is what is happening now. The wind is shifting And we have a chance to do something great for the generations who have not yet arrived here. You know, we've battled for years to create a society which is not based on conquest, but is based on survival. And with the Obama administration, with the intersection between the realities of a shrinking, unsustainable economy, climate change, fuel poverty, and peak oil, we have the chance to make an economy that will reaffirm a relationship to the land. And so I'm very optimistic. The next economy will not affect our sacred sites, our rivers, our lakes, our mountains, because the next economy will not require their consumption. Winona LaDuke is the executive director of Honor the Earth, one of the Native American groups who drew up a green policy statement for the Obama administration, and a former candidate for vice president of the United States under the banner of the Green Party. Winona, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Miigwech. Miigwech. BYD is making a big splash at this year's Detroit Auto Show. 
the Chinese car company is showcasing its plug-in electric hybrid that it sells domestically in China. BYD, which stands for Build Your Dream, hopes to soon sell the cars in Europe and the United States where you still can't buy a plug-in hybrid. Here to give us an update on electric and plug-in hybrid cars is Paul Scott. He's a board member of Plug-in America, a nonprofit group that's keeping the electric car dream alive in the United States. Welcome to the show, Paul Scott. Thank you very much. There are many people who are, are waiting to buy an all-electric or plug-in hybrid car here in the United States. Uh, so if you're in China today, you can get a BYD, you can get a plug-in hybrid, but we won't get them here in the United States for, what, another year or two? Why all the delay? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the uh, the, the car makers uh, passed laws years ago to make it difficult for foreign companies to come into the United States. Uh, it's good in that the cars sold in the United States are very, very safe, but it does uh, present a barrier to coming in and selling here. So the BYD people uh, are selling their vehicle in China right now, but in order to pass all of our regulations, they're going to have to rebuild it a little bit, make it stronger and so forth so it can withstand the crash testing. Over this next uh, few years, we have the price range of, what, uh, $22,000 uh, that the uh, Chinese BYD is being sold for. Um, the Chevy Volt is apparently going to go for forty k when it hits the market. And, of course, there's the Tesla at 100000 What prices do you expect from the other manufacturers working on electric cars? It'll range. Uh, for pure electric cars, uh, for instance, a city car, which is a small, maybe a smart-sized car, a pure battery electric version of that with a 100-mile range, should sell for you know, around 25 or 30 um, That's a very reasonable price uh, when you consider the cost of operation is very, very low. Uh, you have no tune-ups, uh, no maintenance whatsoever on these vehicles, and the price of electricity nationally is about 10 10.4 cents per kilowatt hour. So that's equivalent to buying gas at about 75 or 80 cents a gallon. By the way, Paul, just a little primer for us on the power for these electric vehicles. How will the average person be able to recharge their cars, and what capacity do we have to recharge cars here in America? Well, the capacity is pretty substantial. Uh, you know, we have to build electric load capacity to meet peak loads during the day. And so there's all this excess capacity at night that goes unused. And there's enough there to recharge 73% of the American fleet, which is something north of 180 million vehicles. And that we could do today without adding any capacity to the grid. So what other countries and companies are you keeping your eye on? Um, who do you think will really be able to deliver plug-in hybrids over the next year or two? And, and how soon will we get all electric cars and from where? I would say Toyota is certainly the one to watch on the plug-in hybrid side, uh, along with the Chevy Volt from GM. There are others, uh, certainly Mitsubishi, uh, Nissan, and Volvo. Uh, a lot of the German car makers are starting to get into plug-in hybrids as well, Volkswagen certainly. Uh, so I, I think you're going to see a whole lot of them in two to three years. Um, but, you know, in the next year, probably no plug-in hybrids uh, in the U.S. I think it's going to be at least two years before we see them here. And now what about all electric cars? How soon will we see those here in the U.S.? A, a bit sooner because they're a simpler car to make. Really? Um, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's no joining up an internal combustion engine and trying to make all that work together. You put a motor, a controller, and batteries in a car, and it goes. We had battery electric cars back in 1890. So, you know, a person born before the Civil War could have driven a battery electric car. And so you're going to have those, uh, I think on the market within 12 months and possibly much sooner than that. Is there in existence anywhere an EV1 that escaped the crusher? Yes, <laughs> there is. Uh, the story is, and, and I've got this on pretty good authority, a woman was told to bring her car into the dealership. She did so, went in and was told, oh, our records show we already have this car. So she got back in and drove away. And that car is in Southern California, from what I understand. I don't know who it is. I honestly don't. But I I wish them well, because that's uh, a million-dollar vehicle at this point. Paul Scott is a member of the board of directors of Plug in America and uh, a driver of an all-electric car and an all-electric motorcycle. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Just ahead, America's conservation philanthropists. Put your money on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, the secret life of power lines. But first, listener Alex Lahar of Lexington, Massachusetts, wants to give green homeowners a tax break. Here's his cool fix for a hot planet. Currently, real estate taxes are levied on the basis of how big your house is, how many windows there are, how many bathrooms there are, and so on. Why not extend that assessment method by introducing a green coefficient for a house, which is uh, an assessment of how much energy efficiency might be built into the house, and uh, give people a tax break based on that, and uh, thereby uh, achieve some of the objectives of energy efficiency in, in our society, and also to generate a whole industry which would supply the services needed to do that. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, let us know. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a sleek, cool blue Living on Earth tire gauge. Keep your tires properly inflated, and you could save over $280 a year in fuel costs. That according to a study done at Carnegie Mellon University. So call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email coolfix, that's one word, at LOE.org. That's coolfix at LOE.org. Visitors to our country's majestic parks and nature preserves don't usually forget their experiences. Walking among the giant redwoods of Muir Woods National Monument, or taking in the vast expanses of sky and land in Sevilleta National Wildlife Refuge tend to leave a mark. But the people who conserve these lands are, for the most part, forgotten. Until now. Writer Tom Butler has researched America's conservation philanthropists, from the rich and famous like John D. Rockefeller Jr., to school teacher Mary Wharton, to members of conservation land trusts who collectively buy up local land to keep it protected. 
In collaboration with photographer Antonio Vizcaino, Mr. Butler compiled 40 of these stories into a new book called Wildlands Philanthropy, The Great American Tradition. Tom, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Why did you write this book? There are thousands of wild places, protected natural areas, literally from sea to shining sea, from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, across the country and around the world. And this tradition of wildlands philanthropy is something that has profoundly affected the American experience. Millions of us, we take our children to the Smokies to go camping, or we stroll among those Kabul beaches of Acadia National Park. We enjoy these places which in many cases have come to embody our very idea of America the Beautiful. And yet relatively few people have any idea that there were people, individuals or small groups, using their own uh, private passion and energy and time and personal wealth to save these places for the future. Your book begins with Muir Woods National Monument. And uh, probably for good reason, because it's such an amazing place. You leave the clamor and clatter of San Francisco. You drive over the, the Golden Gate Bridge. And it doesn't take you very long to be really, I think, in one of the most amazing places on Earth. I mean, the height of the Redwoods is like being in a cathedral or something. And I was surprised to learn that it wasn't the conservationist John Muir who was behind the conservation there, but this couple, William and Elizabeth Thatcher Kent, and they were also responsible for an adjoining uh, state park. Who were these people? William and Elizabeth Thatcher Kent were a progressive Marin County couple who, in 1905, bought the very last tract of old-growth coast redwoods that existed in the San Francisco Bay Area. All the others had been logged out. Well, a private utility developer approached William Kent and offered to buy his land. He wanted to skim off the giant trees, dam Redwood Creek, and create a private reservoir. And Kent realized that fighting the eminent domain process that the developer had commenced was likely to be difficult. And so he circumvented the developer. He bundled up the deeds to about 295 acres, including that great cathedral grove in Muir Woods, and sent it off to the Secretary of the Interior, who was Garfield, and asked that President Teddy Roosevelt use the Antiquities Act and declare it a national monument. And he specifically asked that it be named for that great early wilderness uh, conservationist, John Muir. And Teddy Roosevelt did just that. But he, he also wrote Kent back a letter and said, essentially, this is a grand gift and a wonderful thing you've done, but uh, shouldn't we name it Kent National Monument? Because you're the one giving the land. And uh, William Kent wrote the president back and said, I've got uh, four rugged boys that I'm raising up to be manly men like you, Mr. President. And uh, if, if they can't keep the name Kent alive, then I'm content it should be forgotten. <laughs> and, and moreover, he didn't want to, and here I'll quote uh, directly, he didn't want to stencil one's own name upon a benefaction. Now, Going through your book, Tom, uh, many of the stories involve folks that, well, frankly, they had a lot of dough. I think the Kents were a fairly affluent family who could afford to write a check for this amazing piece of old growth. But you also have a story in here about a couple of women who, well, put a preserved area on their credit cards. This is the, <laughs> this is the Fresh Tracks uh, story. This was just a few years ago. Two amazing young women, they were graduate students at the University of Colorado, and in between their studies, they were also conservation activists, particularly uh, with a, an animal defense group that was busy trying to prevent these sort of horrific prairie dog massacres that were then legal in Colorado. 
where gunners would go out to a prairie dog town and blast away and turn the little prairie dogs, which are, of course, a keystone species in the short grass prairie ecosystem, they would turn them into a fine red mist. There is even a, a sort of red mist subculture. Well, these two young activists were among a group that would go in and try to block these prairie dog shoots by chaining themselves with bike locks and the like in front of the gunners. And time after time, they would get hauled away by the police. And on one long holiday weekend, they were sitting in the Kit Carson County Jail in Colorado. And they began thinking, well, what can we do uh, to more effectively protect these creatures and this habitat that we love? And they founded a land trust. They raised money. They used credit card initially, you know, debt to help pay off the mortgage payments on a tract of about 1,200 acres of shortgrass prairie in eastern Colorado, which they bought and protected as the Fresh Tracks Nature Preserve. Uh, Tom, I wanted to ask you, how important has the local land trust movement been to conservation? Incredibly important. I would say that the growth of the land trust movement is one of the most hopeful trends in our entire national experience. You don't need to be a Rockefeller anymore. There are opportunities for Americans in virtually every community uh, from every type of background to engage in this tradition of wildlands philanthropy to help continue it, expand it, invigorate it for the next century. Tom Butler wrote the essays in the new book, Wildlands Philanthropy, The Great American Tradition, which he did with photographer Antonio Vizcaino. The photographs in it, by the way, are just exquisite, and you can see a few of them on our website at LOE.org. Tom Butler, thank you so much for taking this time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Intimacy. It's an important part of enduring relationships. Intimacy with our home ground, our chosen places, and the places we travel through and to requires us to be on good terms with those landscapes. For that, we need language. Precise, evocative, memorable. To start with, we need to know what things are called. That's the idea behind the book called Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. Barry Lopez and Deborah Guartney asked 45 writers to describe different geological features. This week, marine biologist Eva Salitas of Homer, Alaska, gives us her definition of anchor ice. Anchor ice. Anchor ice forms in fresh water like a second skin over the frozen bottoms of chilled rivers and streams. Cold bottom water slows and then pools behind stones, initiating its formation. Eventually, the spread of ice may bind rocks, plants, invertebrates, and other organisms together in sheets, pinning them to the stream bed. In a similar fashion, anchor ice may coat submerged structures or objects, pier footings and boat anchors in cold, motionless water. Anchor ice also forms on the floors of polar seas, where it is known as anaglu to Inupiaq Eskimos. When the mass of this type of anchor ice is sufficient, it will suddenly break loose in jagged fragments and rise to the surface. Exuding its salts diminishes the specific gravity of sea ice. When a section of it grows large enough for the force pushing it toward the surface to overcome the strength of its anchor hold, it rises. 
In like fashion, when strong currents or storms churn the upper layers of water, the agitation might cause spears and blocks of anchor ice, with their load of embedded seaweed, abrasive sand, rocks, and shells to break free. Such unexpected surfacings of huge ice chunks can upend, puncture, or damage a small boat. Other names include depth, underwater, and lappered ice. Eva Solitas is a writer, teacher, and marine biologist from Homer, Alaska. Her definition of anchor ice appears in the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gortney. At some point, just about everyone has been out along the highway, driving along, ignoring the subject of our next story. Some of you may be ignoring it right now, even as it races alongside your car. I'm talking about the modest hero of the American landscape, the high-tension power line. Reporter Ike Sreeskandaraja spoke with two explorers who just completed an investigation of these overlooked giants. Their project aims to uncover the secret life of power lines. So these two guys, a cartographer, my name is Brian Rosa, and a photographer, my name is Adam Ryder, have been fascinated by power lines from a very young age. I spent a long time in uh, in the car with my parents on really long car rides, and I would, I was the only child, so I would be looking out the window a lot. Looking out the window, Brian and Adam both noticed these gently undulating, curvy lines. I used to follow them with my finger, kind of going up and down in, in almost sort of like a wavelength pattern when I was in the car. There's something dreamy about the power lines and the land under them. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a really unique kind of tract of land that doesn't have any development on it except for itself. And so it's kind of, in a way, it's really pristine and untouched and, and virginal. And it's kind of, kind of like romantic and magical in that way. Something inviting. It doesn't appear to be monitored, and there's like nobody out there, so you can kind of imagine yourself, or I would imagine myself, like building a little house on there, you know, living alone or something like that. Well, young Adam didn't end up moving there. I'd like to think he was that cool. <laughs> but this past year, he and Brian got a grant from Rhode Island's Arts Council to investigate and photograph the high tension lines that stretch over most of Rhode Island. So they drove out to a small town called Burville parked their car, and started walking. When I got out of the car, I tended to walk along the power lines in whatever direction was opposite of the way that Adam was going. And that's when Brian heard something strange. When we first started walking along the power lines, I thought that there were a lot of uh, cicadas. It didn't actually occur to me that there's this excess energy escaping from these, uh, from these power lines that are actually making a, a constant electronic hiss all the time. These seemingly empty swatches of land are filled with sound. They make a loud buzzing sound. Maybe you've noticed some sort of sound too as you were driving by pole after pole after pole. 
They definitely, they, they provide a rhythm if you're driving past them on the highway. Like if you're a commuter going past all these poles and they're evenly spaced, spaced, spaced. But yeah, they kind of create a visual rhythm as, as they travel along the state. Like a heartbeat. These pillars are more than just dead trees. They really have a life of their own. And as Brian and Adam continued to hike along the lines, they saw that the land under and around the pylons is filled with a lot more than just sound. We were probably trespassing most of the time that we were there. There were a whole lot of other people doing that too, walking their dogs, riding their ATVs. We even found a stop sign on, on one, of the, one of the power line poles. And it was really crazy. I couldn't figure out why it was there or who it was meant to protect, but it was seemed to be, to be put up for, for like motocross people or something. It was totally funny. And with a bit of amateur archaeology, Brian turned up even more. Just seeing a fire pit that someone made and a few rocks with a wooden board across them where someone was sitting and people would just, you know, go have fires and, and sit around and drink and be delinquent. And it kind of made me uh, think back to my teenage years a little bit. The power lines carve out a space for people to meet, but Brian and Adam say they connect us in another way. By following these power lines, which seem to cut through disparate areas that aren't necessarily connected, when looking from above, you actually see that there's a continuum of rural to suburban to urban, back to suburban to industrial, and that they're all part of a vast network. What's really I think actually awesome is the best word I can use to say. What's really awesome about seeing uh, kind of this parade of power lines through the landscape, especially in rural areas, is that we're kind of seeing these like uh, these like tendrils connecting humanity kind of as like as like one like large organism, and it's a cool way of of looking at us. You know what I mean? These are the power lines that bind. For living on Earth, I'm Ike Sriskandaraja. Brian Rosa and Adam Ryder's power line photographs and maps are on display at the Stairwell Gallery in Providence, Rhode Island through February 5th. Or to see some of the Paris photos, visit our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, Alfred Hitchcock's movie The Birds thrilled and chilled audiences when it was released in the 1960s, but few viewers knew it was based on real-life events. The movie suggested that they were actually attacking people. What was probably happening is they were poisoned and they were disoriented and they are just simply flying into things. And the mysterious poisoning is still happening today. What's sickening California wildlife? Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a blast of winter. Recordist Chris Watson bared the frigid weather in the remote Glen Cannock in Inverness Shire, Scotland, to capture the heavy winds. He managed to record for 10 minutes before the gale forces blew over his microphones. <laughs> Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. 
Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our intern is Liz Gross. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening, and uh, send some blankets, would you? Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skoll.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.